Welcome to the New Vision Church podcast. New Vision Church is a diverse, Bible-teaching, Jesus-centered church in San Diego, California, and exists to transform people and their communities by replicating followers of the biblical Jesus. Thanks for joining us today. Now here's this week's sermon. I'm sorry, I thought it was on. (laughs) So, um... We're going to be First uh, Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 8 to 12 this morning. Um, and so if you didn't hear me again, men's ministry next Saturday. So <laughs> come be there at 530. We're going to finish our, our unity ser- uh, series uh, today as we've been looking for the last couple of weeks dealing with the issue of unity. We're calling it uni- Unity Manifested by Love. It's the story of a little boy and he had killed a lion. This little boy was standing over a lion, and people asked him, did you kill this lion? And he said, yeah. And they were so amazed because he was really, really small. And the crowd was there, and they're like, how did you kill your lion? They said, how did you kill this lion? Confused at this little smallness of the kid. And he goes, with my club. With your club? He goes, well, how big is your club? He goes, oh, it's about a 100-member club. It's something about coming together. It's something about unity that can defeat a lion. See, we have to understand today, there's a lion who's out to seek whom he may devour. It's referenced as the enemy. But when there's unity coming together, when we are oneness of this church, we can devour, we can club, this group can club the lion and defeat the enemy, the lion. But it only has to be done by unity. It has to be done by oneness. Because there's an enemy who's seeking who we may devour. Not only want to devour our marriages and our relationships and our community, but the Bible says that as Paul has written to the Galatians, be careful that he doesn't even devour us and bring division and devour devour us from within. He wants to destroy us from within, even as he comes from us from without. The enemy wants to divide us. And so we have to be watchful. We're closing off the series of unity. We're going to get into another series through the study of Jonah coming up in a couple weeks as we talk about mercy. But today we're finishing on unity, right? And I'm going to finish it in, 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 in the book of 1 Peter because 1 Peter was under some heavy persecution at this time. He's writing this book at the latter part of his life, and many of you know the Apostle Peter. Many of you know that he was one of the disciples. Many of you know that he had a whole history of Jesus. Blessings and failures in his life. But now he's writing and he's saying, listen, we are living in some troubled times and the church is being persecuted. They're feeling the heaviness. They're coming in and it wants to divide as, the, as many of the leaders of the time wanted to see the church destroyed and they wanted to see it not have its effectiveness. So He's beginning to speak about unity, specifically to the family. He wants to describe what what unity looks like. What what is the manifestation of unity? What does that look like? And this morning, we're looking at three things. There's three things. We're going to look at the manifestation of unity. We're going to look at the response to disunity. And we're going to look at the Lord's response to both and how he sees it this morning. Let's pray. Father heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. We thank you for your love and your blessings, for your goodness and mercy and grace. And I pray this morning as we close off this sermon series on unity. Father, we're going to talk about the unity of the family, the church family, the body. 
Father, we're going to talk about things that are going to be hard this morning because you're going to ask us to respond to things that are going to be very difficult to respond to because our nature doesn't want that. But if we're people of the Spirit, then you called us to respond appropriately to things that can be rude and insulting. How do we respond as a church to one another and to the things around us? How do we keep our head? How do we keep walking in love in spite when there's not love practiced? Father, help us to to walk in your spirit when we don't want to walk in your spirit, when we want to retaliate when we should love. Father, teach us these things this morning. We need your spirit to teach us and to empower us. We thank you, we praise you, and we honor you in Jesus' name. And everybody said? I'm reading out of 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. says this, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessings, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he would love life and see good days. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and the ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We're going to look at three things this morning. Here's the first one. We're going to look at the manifestation of unity. I remember when Cassie and I, we did a trip to do a father-daughter camp many, many years ago. And Cassie must have, she was in high school. She's my youngest, and she probably was about 16 or, no, she was a senior, so she had to be 17 years old. And we went up to J.H. Ranch, which is up in Northern California. And up at J.H. Ranch, they, they really pair you up to do crazy stuff. And one of them was a ropes course. We had to do this ropes course. So we had to go up to about four stories high. And then what we did is we had to put on our harnesses, have our helmets, and we had to really go across this rope course to get to the other side. And for whatever reason, as I got onto that rope, and I was going to kind of help her, I was trying to get on. She was getting on first, and then I was getting on. I couldn't, I couldn't keep my balance. Like, I don't know, maybe it's me getting older and whatever it is, but this rope started rocking and every time I get on, I'd fall off and I just dangled there and then she would fall off. And the reality is I kept trying to, 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 to get it and my, my failure was stumbling her and making her fall. So finally we stepped back off the, off the rope and she said, Dad, I want to try this. If you trust me, I want to try this. You go first and let me help you and I'll hold on to you. You hold on to the rope and I will stabilize you. And then so I said, all right, we'll try this. And sure enough, she grabbed me from the back and I'm walking to the front and it, it was beginning to work. We could walk and literally she was holding me and guiding me as I walked across the rope and we accomplished that, that task together. Regardless of who we are and what we think this morning, guys, I had to humble myself in order to let my daughter lead me. I had to submit to her leadership in order for the success of that task. Guys, as it relates to unity, sometimes humility needs to take a role and a place in order for us to be successful and to be one to accomplish the things that God wants us to do. Because we're going to get on some tightrope sometimes in our walk. It's going to be difficult in our walk. But we have to be united in our walk in order to accomplish 
the goal. Look at verse eight. It says, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted and be courteous. Peter begins to write about, here's the manifestation of what unity looks like. Let me tell you what unity looks like. It says here, finally, what is he saying here? He's, been, he's actually been writing throughout the whole book about submission and yielding. In the first seven verses, he actually deals with the relationship between husband and wife. He goes, you want unity in his marriage? There's an order to things. If you want to learn more about that, this is my study last week. We talked about relationship between husband and wife. You want your marriage to work? There needs to be submission to one another and unto the Lord. And so he begins to address that in verses one through seven. And then he says, finally, let me turn to, we've been talking about the husband and bride in verses one through seven. Let me talk about the husband and bride as it relates to the church, the unity of the church. And that's why he uses the word finally here. Unity comes, first of all, and starts with oneness of mind. It starts with oneness of mind. It starts with our thinking. You have to think before you do. Everything comes from the mind. That's why often we read Paul write in, to the Romans to renew your mind. I got to change the way you think in order to bring unity. I got to change the way all the things that you've learned. I got to be able to change it so you can understand what my word is. And so this morning, Paul, Peter is going to begin to download some new things into your mind about unity. Sometimes he's got to have to, to, to take everything out and reboot you up and download some things in your mind about unity. Because the world will give us a definition of unity. But I don't want wisdom from the world. I want wisdom from heaven. All right? I want something that's going to be able to move me to where I need to move. And sometimes we've learned some things that haven't been correct. And so when we get in situations in our marriages, in our church, and we don't know the right, have the right operating system, then we're only going to default to that operating system. But what if that operating system is broken? Then I have to have new information that's going to be inputted in order to have it work correctly. Sometimes some of us in our life, we got viruses that came in. And that virus has broken us. And so what's happening is here, Peter's saying, I'm going to put some, I'm going to download some new information because this brain is a moral storehouse and we have to drop in some good information in order how to live biblically and holy and unto the Lord. And so he lays this out here. First, it starts with being of one mind. We are to be, as a church, like-minded. We are to be harmonious. In some ways, we're called to think the same, not because we're supposed to be robots, but there's a common thought in the scriptures, which is love. You have to be of one mind here. Be of, of the same mind toward one another. So what does that mean? We're called to have the mind of Christ. We're called to have the mind of Christ. We're, we're called to think the way Christ would have thought. See, the problem with that is this way, this, as we look at our world, the problem for us is we want the unity of the mind if it aligns with our mind. <laughs> if it aligns with our way, then that's the way we want. But no, we to look at what's God's way. How's God asking us to handle situations and circumstances? How does he want us to live? And we're to put the mind of Christ on because Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says this, for who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter's calling the people of God to a place of unity. To a place of unity. Peter's calling the church to work in cooperation, to work together for a common goal. 
Why did the church grow so fast in the first century? Because if you go all the way to the book of Acts, what did God have them do? What was the command that Jesus gave to the church before he left and ascended? He said, I want you to go to an upper room and wait, and I'm going to give you something. I'm going to give you a gift that I promised before to you before I left, which was the gift of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, right? And what did they do? They went to a room, 120 of them, and they begin to pray. And when they begin to pray, what? They, were, they said they were all in one accord, or they are all of one mind. And when they came together, the Holy Spirit came upon them, right? We needed the work of the Holy Spirit to bring unity, came upon them, and then there was an outburst of the church, and 3,000 came to be saved because Peter preached the gospel. But it had to start first with unity. It had to start first with the power of God. We will not have unity in the church or outside the church unless there is spirit-led. Unless it's of the, of the Lord. And it was the oneness of mind which was the key for the advancement and the success of the kingdom. But let me ask this question then. You might be asking this question. What was the mind of Christ? What is the mind of Christ? You're Pete, Pastor Pete, you're, you're explaining this mind of Christ, but what is it? We only have to go to chapter 2 of Philippians, verses 1 to 4. It gives a definition of what the mind of Christ is. And I want to read that to you because I want you to understand what it is. It says, if there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one accord of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind to let each esteem others better than himself, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. True love is humility. True love is looking at your brothers and sisters and not saying, I'm better than you. That's not what he's saying. Christ just says, he even goes on in verses five on down to talk about how he came to, to the heavens, to the earth, and did count himself equal to be with God. They betook on the likeness of men and the flesh of men. He submitted himself to the, he humbled himself for the interest of others. I'm not talking about low esteem here. I'm talking about esteeming others and encouraging others and edifying others and building others, others. Sometimes that might even look like we're putting ourselves down, but it's not because that's, that's the value of God. That's the mind of God. That's the economy of God. He values that. See, in our world, what does the world value? I put myself over you. We call that racism. I put myself over you. We call that power out of control. I put my authority over you to trample on you to get to where I need to be, but I'm going to step on you to get to where I need to be. That's the philosophy of this world. It doesn't care for the people. See, the thing about King David is he loved the people. That's what the people knew about King David. He always looked out for the interests of the people. That's why he was such a great king and a king after God's own heart. He didn't abuse his power. Just read First and Second Kings and all the kings that abused power. And they did it for evil and for self-glory. But David loved the Lord. Guys, we're called here to love others. To put others first. That's the, that's the value that God values. And so let me tell you what that looks like. Because unity has four legs to stand on this morning. We see that in verse 8 here this morning, right? We know, the, we know that when you go to, you have a dining room table, has, it has four legs, right? And that table's there, 
what? To sit around, to build community. You, you have a table to eat as a family. You have a table to eat as a friend and it has four legs that holds that table to build community. Let me tell you about four things that are going to build healthy community. And he lists them here. Number one, compassion. The first leg is compassion, right? Compassion and sympathy are very similar, but they're very different. Sympathy has to do with how you feel for something or someone. You feel you, when somebody's hurting or you, they have a lost one. Some of you, we know that Pastor Fergie passed away a week and a half ago, and, and you had sympathy for the Ferguson family, which means that you felt sad for them. You were sympathetic of their situation. You felt sorrow for them. But compassion goes deeper than that. Compassion is similar in emotion. We feel bad for someone, but compassion goes further in that it takes action to the plight of others. It, it, it says, I feel bad, but I want to do something about it. Compassion is the action of sympathy. It's the activity of love. When you look at the scriptures, Jesus had compassion on people. When he saw, he said, when he saw the 5,000, he had compassion on them and he fed them. He felt sorry for their state. And even when the disciples said, send them home, Jesus said, we're not sending them home, we're gonna feed them. Because he had compassion. When he stood over the city of Jerusalem and he wept for the city, he had compassion for those because they were like sheep without a shepherd. It said he had compassion on the people and he healed them. Compassion is the action of love. Amen. We have compassion ministries in the church. We don't just say, be warm and be filled. We give them drink and we give them food. That's compassion. That's what we're called to do as a church, to have compassion, not judgment, compassion. That's the first leg. Here's the second leg, guys. It says love as brothers or and sisters, right? We are a family. This is his church. This is God's family. We're not biological by, by blood. We're biological by the blood of Christ. That's what, that's what makes us family. By this, all men shall know that you are my family or my disciples if you love one another, Jesus said. That will be the evidence of a believer to love one another. It's the manifestation of the fruits of the Spirit in your life, that's love for the fruit of the Spirit is love. And he, he defines it there. Listen, Jesus didn't command us to like our brothers and sisters. He commanded us to love them. He commanded us to love them, right? In fact, the word love here, we know that the Bible, the New Testament is written, written original language is Greek. It's the original language that we translate from the Greek into the English, and that's how we got our English Bible. The Greek word for love here is Philadelphia, or Philadelphia, where we get the city of brotherly love. This is a friendship love. This is a love that we're called to care for one another, and we are to love like, the, but the, like you are our own brothers and sisters. Like we love our own kids, we are to love one another. That's the love that, that Peter's trying to get across here. That's the power. Love them like you would love your own brother and sister. That's how we're called to love. Well, maybe you're at ought with your brother and sister. You're saying, hey, okay, I'll love them like that. But no, that's not the love he's talking. He's talking about this friendship, deep-rooted love. That's the second leg of the table. How about the third leg of, leg of the table? How about tender-heartedness? Tender-heartedness, right? Tender-hearted means to be a softy, to be soft. I, I, when I was um, growing up, I had a grandfather and all my brothers and sisters and my cousins, we always used to go over to our grandpa's house 
every Friday night when we were young. And uh, we used to hang out. And, you know, I come from a Hispanic family, so my grandfather, he used to love to stay up all night and listen to his mariachi music and listen to all the music and hang out. He'd be singing to the top of his lungs. He might have a little bit of whiskey sometimes. He might have a little bit of those things too. He was in a joyful spirit. But there's something about my grandfather. All the grandkids used to get there to hang out with him. And we knew that if my grandfather was a softie, and we just kept pushing, hey, Grandpa, can we go to the store? Hey, Grandpa, can you give him money? And you're like, oh, no, 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 no. Go play, go play. And then he, we know as the night got further, we just got to keep knocking. Because Grandpa was a softie. And by the end of the night, he was giving us fives and tens. And he was popping money in and all these different things. And all the grandkids would be like, woo! We'd be celebrating, you know what I mean? I know we worked him a little bit. Right? You guys did it too. You know what I'm talking about. Come on now. Come on. My grandpa was such a softie. He always loved us. And he expressed it by being so tender-hearted. Paul writes to the Ephesian church in the Ephesus, book of Ephesus 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as Christ forgave you. Tender-hearted means to, to feel the pain of others sometimes too. To have a tender heart. A soft heart. This world wants to trample on our heart, and that's the problem. It, 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 it's put, it made our heart hard by the things we see and the things we watched. You ever um, gone hiking and you see the path dirt that's really hard and you walk on that path? For some of us, the world has trampled on our heart and made a rough, hard path on our hearts. But God, keep our heart tender. Keep our heart soft, even in the days that we live in. That's the third leg. How about the fourth leg? It says courteous. We're to be courteous, right? Friendly and, and kind. To keep, and it actually means to be humble in mind and, and attitude. But we often know as described as what? We, to be polite, to be respectful, to be considerate. To, to be courteous is just to have manners with one another, be respectful of one another. You know what? When you... When you um, when you go on your first date, I remember taking my wife out on the first date. You want to make first impressions, right? That's right. So, like, you know, when you, you, she comes out and you, you compliment her on her dress or what she's wearing, and then, you know, and then you take her to the car and then you open the door for her, you know, and you get in. You're being polite. You're being courteous. Sometimes we've forgotten that in our marriage and we've gotten away from that. That's, that's the etiquette of being a people and showing etiquette and kindness. Guys, when people come to our church for the first time, are we courteous to them? Do we express love to them? Are we kind to them? Do we welcome them? First impression goes a long way. It goes a long way, and it goes a long way with who we are as people, as God's people, whether we're in our workplace or in our home or in our schools, wherever we may be. Are we courteous people? Are we polite people? That's the character and nature of God. That's what he's commanding us to do is this is really what keeps unity and keeps peace, right? The four legs of, of the table, right? Tender hardness, courteous, love, right? And compassion. That's what holds the table up. That's the community we should be in. That should be the characteristics of new vision. I'm hoping that's what we're known for. That's the word on the street. That's our reputation, but Peter gets a little deeper about this when he talks in some ways about disunity. Here's the second one. 
We look at the response of disunity in 1 Peter 3, verses 9 through 11. There's a story in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 6 about the prophet Elisha. The king of Syria was coming to war against Israel. And they had an army. And they would plan to come against God's people, but the prophet kept getting a word from the Lord. And the word from the Lord was that I know how they're going to attack it. So he would tell the king of Israel, this is how Syria is going to attack you. And so Syria could never defeat them. And so they got frustrated. How is, how is the kings knowing the plan? And they found out, oh, the prophet gets a word from God about what we're going to do. Like he's in our own room and he tells the king and we can't defeat him. And so, well, go find that prophet. And, they, and then and they said, and they, they heard that the prophet was in a place called Dothan. And so, okay, Matt, get all the army, get all the people together. We're going to go after Elisha. And so they go after, and they go to Dothan. Dothan is a walled city. And so the army of God's people are out there. Syria army is out there, ready to go. The prophet Elisha is there. He has a servant. It doesn't say the name of their servant, but some believe it's Gehazi. And so you have this servant there, and he wakes up in the morning, and he sees this army, a mass army all around Dothan. And he's like, he turns to the prophet. Elisha, he's panicking. What are we going to do? Elisha's cool and calm. Don't sweat it, bro. God's got this. And then Elisha prays and says, open up the eyes of my servants. And he opens up the eyes of the servant. And there was an arm, a host of God's army of chariots with fire all around him. And the, the prophet's like, snap, look at that. Whoa. And when they were going to attack, the Syrian army was going to come against God's people. Elisha prayed, and the whole army went blind. And they couldn't fight God's people. And then the prophet said, come on, let's lead these people. And so he led them blind. Can you imagine this whole army being led by the prophet to a place called Samaria? And he leads them to Samaria, and they're, they're now prisoners of war that are blind. And then the Elisha prophet prays again, and they open their eyes. They're like, whoa, where are we? We're in Samaria. How, like, how do we get here? And then the king of Israel says to the prophet, we should kill them. Should we kill them? And Elisha says, nope, nope. Feed them, give them drink, and send them back home. Feed them, give them drink, and send them back home. And the Bible says that the army of Syria never attacked Israel again at that time. When we have this, what's our response when we've been ridiculed or attacked and somebody wants to bring disunity. Peter in the third chapter begins to describe that response. Number one, he says, don't reciprocate evil. Don't retaliate. Look at verse nine. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessings. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Okay, I hope you catch this. You have a Bible. God gives a command, but every time God gives a command in the scripture, there's always a promise. Sometimes you don't like the commands, but keep reading. Just keep reading your Bible. We stop at the command. We don't realize that there's a promise that comes with the command. He always does that in the scriptures. And there's a command given with a promise. Not only are we called to love God's people, we're also called to love his enemies. Come on now. I don't hear no amens right now. Listen, listen. See, this is, the, parad this is the, the paradox of the gospel. This is why the gospel is different. Remember, the, the church was under heavy persecution. Many believers at this time 
were being killed for their faith. They were being martyred for their faith, for what they believed they were being burned and they were being fed to the lions and they were being crucified. There were, there were a lot of things happening here. There was, this, there was this intense persecution. They were facing such hardship. And Peter, the apostle says, don't get even with them, right? It's natural, it's natural for us to retaliate when wrong is done for us. It's natural for us to curse and for us to fight, that's, our, that's, our, that's a natural, logical way in our culture, in our nature. But it's not God's way. It's not God's way. He's saying, don't do evil deeds or verbal abuse to your enemy. You, you hear what he's saying here? Because don't, don't, don't do evil for evil, that's deed, and don't revile with words. Don't revile with reviling words. There. Don't repay assault. Don't repay insults with assaults. Do not exchange words with words. Don't do evil deeds with evil deeds and don't, don't, don't get in arguments. Don't get words that are argumentative. What he's saying is don't feed the fire. You ever get in arguments or people get mad and then they start something and you got to say something back and then they get mad? You're only feeding the fire. We're called to quench the fire. We're called to put out the fire. The challenge here is also, and this is difficult to forgive those in some ways that have insulted you. In fact, in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, he, he references how Jesus responded when evil came upon Jesus. He said this in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, 23. He did not, he, Jesus, did not retaliate when he was insulted nor threatened revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. You know what he's saying is? I'm trusting my heaven father to take care of my enemies. That's what he's saying. I don't have to defend myself. My bodyguard is the father. <laughs> I have one who defends me. I have one who protects me. I have one who goes before me. I trust in him. In fact, read Romans chapter 12 that talks about how we're not to retaliate. But when they're hungry, give them food. And when they're thirsty, give them drink because it's like pouring hot coals on them. And God will bring judgment upon them in due season. He's responding to us. If we've been insulted or, or, or we've been verbally abused or we've been all these different things, what's the nature of the believer? What's the character of the believer? It's not the character of the world. That's walking in the flesh. We're called to walk in the spirit. We no longer live under an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, which is the basis for justice. We know that in the Old Testament. We work on the basis of mercy. A lot of people yell for justice. Be careful what you ask for. I want mercy because I've been unjust in my life. I've fallen short in my life. I need to be forgiven. Because for the wages of sin is death. That's justice. But the free gift of God is eternal life. That's mercy. We're asking for mercy. God has been merciful to us. Others. That's why Jesus said, if you don't extend mercy to others, I will not extend mercy to you. We got to be merciful people. Why? Because that's what we're called to. That's what we're called to. He says, you're called to this very thing, right? 
when there's a battle or you're boxing verbally or you're, 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 there's things going on, he says, on the contrary, right? Bless. On the contrary, when you're boxing, swing shouldn't be physical. It's spiritual because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. Okay? We counter with blessings. We don't counter with punches. We hit with, when we're hit with curses, we counter with blessings. That's, that's how we fight. Because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal for bringing down strongholds, but are spiritual. That's the weapon of our warfare. Our armor, is, our armor of God at Ephesians 6 is not carnal, it's spiritual. In order to fight the enemy, we have to fight with spiritual means, not carnal means, not earthly means. That's why our mind has to be renewed. We will never understand this unless it's born of the spirits. The word here, for the word blessing, means to speak well of or to eulogize. It's a, we know that a kind word, the Bible says, the Proverbs says, a kind word turns away wrath, right? We know that, I think Peter's writing this because remember, he had his own issues. When they came to arrest Jesus in the garden, Peter took out the sword, right? And he retaliated with what? Trying to kill Machias. You know, he's a fisherman because he didn't hit him in the right spot. He just cut off his ear. Right? And Jesus said, whoa, what are you doing? Don't you know I could bring legions of angels down? And he healed Malchus's ear. How did he defeat the enemy? He healed him. He touched him. That's how he defeated the enemy. Take me. Peter, get away, man. Even Jesus, even in the midst of all that was going on, he heals his enemy. Can you imagine that? If your process is the healing of your enemy, how much he'll come to love God and love his neighbor. That's what we saw here, right? Jesus said, but I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitely use you and persecute you. That's hard to live by. It's found in the Beatitudes. The Sermon on the Mount that Jesus' words he gave, reach Matthew 5 through 7, those chapters. That's a sermon Jesus gave on a mountain to the disciples of how we're called to have kingdom living, how we're called to be followers of Jesus, and how we're called to live. But the promise of this, if you do it, the promise is this, a blessing will be given to you, a blessing. You're in line for an inheritance if you obey God's word. I love David Gusick. He's a famous pastor and he wrote a commentary. He says, if you can't love for the sake of Jesus or for the sake of your brother, then do it for your own sake. Listen, there's a response there's a response to when we've been hurt and wounded. We're called to love. Here's a second. We're called to love with words and deeds to disarm unity. That's verses 10 and 11, right? It says, for he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Now, in your Bible, it should have some indentation, like, there's, like you have the writing and then it goes indented a little bit, right? And it's got funky writing, like script writing. He, what it is, is Peter is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting the book of Psalms, verses 12 through 16. 
You can go back and you'll see it's almost word for word. He's, that, so what does that tell me? First of all, Peter knows the word. Peter knows the scriptures. He's, he's in the midst of this battle. He's in the midst of what's going on. He's writing to the church. And I can imagine God giving him Psalm 34 in his mind. And so he's writing it down to, to pass it on to the church. God wants you. He's writing to God wants you to have abundant life. But we know there are some things that are going to extinguish the abundant life. Some of you this morning are here. Maybe you've just struggled with your purpose in life. And why am I here? And just things haven't gone your way or whatever it is it may be. Some of us are just trying to endure life. We're just trying to get through it. And sometimes we feel life is, is burdensome. It's hard. And we see life like that. Some of you are trying to escape life. You're running away from things, or you go to addictions, or you go to different things to escape life. Some of you are in, enjoying life. You're taking pleasure in the things of life, and taking pleasure in God, and you're walking by faith. All of us are on a diff, different journey in life. But God wants us not only to have eternal life, but he wants to have us abundant life. He wants us to have quality of life. And so when Peter begins to speak out of Psalm 34, he speaks about what, is, what the good days might look like and what a good life might look like. Now, I want you to get a little background on Psalm 34 because sometimes we think, oh, we're going to talk the good life. You know, I remember uh, that old play, Annie, and there's a song called The Good Life. And they think the good life is money and easy street and all that stuff. We think that's the good life. But when, when David wrote Psalm 34, he was actually running away from King Saul, who was trying to kill him. He actually is in a place where he's in a place called Gath, which is where, where David, you know, David and Goliath's story, the Goliath, the big giant story. This was the home of, of Goliath. And so everybody would have said, oh, I know David. That's the guy that slew Goliath. You're in my hood, man. What you doing in my neighborhood? Right? And, 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 and they're like, dude, we know you, bro. You slew one of our, one of our homies there. We're going to get you. And so David acts like he goes crazy. And the king sees that he's going crazy. And he says, get out of here. And he goes, flees. And he writes this psalm. And he's talking about having a good life, but he's being chased to be killed. His homies, people are trying to get him. All these different things. When you look at Psalm 34, David faced fear, he faced trouble, he faced, he, he faced afflictions, he even had a broken heart. He was fearful in verse 4, troubled in 6 and 17, afflicted in verse 19, and had a broken heart in verse 18. And, and David says, this is the good life? <laughs> wait, 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 what's going on here? It's, uh, it doesn't make no sense. What are you talking about the good? Let me tell you why it's the good life for David. In the midst of his trials and what he was facing, he worshiped God. He praised God. In the midst of the trials that God had his ear toward him, when he was going to difficulties, he could pray and he knew that God listened. We see that in verse 4. In the midst of the trials, God guarded him. There was protection in verse 7. In the midst of his trials, he tasted the goodness of God and had pleasure in him in verse 8. In the midst of his trials, God had his eyes on David. His presence in verse 18. He said, in the midst of all that was going on at that time, and it was hard, God was good. I'm okay. I could only imagine that hymn, it is well with my soul. It is all good because God is with me in the midst of all the mess. God is present. So when you come to, to verse 
here, Tennis is, I remember reading the New Living Translation, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. Peter is beginning to reveal the mystery of a good life, of an abundant life. You want to see good days? Listen to the words of the Apostle Peter. Want to have good days ahead? Want to have happy days? Remember that show? You want to have happy feet? Okay. Here it is, guys. Here's three steps. I call them love steps. Three things to disarm disunity. Here. Number one, guys, we must control our tongue. Right? Come on now. We must control our tongue. This little muscle in our mouth has such power. Right? We got to try to put, we got to rein it in a little bit like we rein in a horse. Okay? Right? He uses the word refrain in the passage. Refrain his tongue from evil. Hold it back. Re refrain his lips from speaking deceit. He's talking, there's refrain. Maybe we got to hold it back. Get it under control, right? Get under control the deceptive words. Get under control that gossip you have going on. Get under control that slander. Get under control those lies. Get those things under control. Sometimes we speak before we think. Sometimes our words are like a double-edged sword, man. It cuts people, and it hurts people. Things you might have said to your parents, things you might have said to your girlfriend or boyfriend, things you might have said to your boss or your children. Your tongue. Watch your tongue. Watch what you say, right? Our tongue could twist things, could twist the truth. Our tongue could be used to tear things down when things are spoken in a, in a wrong spirit. We have a wrong spirit. I love James. James, the apostle James, the half-brother of Jesus. He don't mix words. I love that about the Bible. It doesn't mix words. Look what it says here. See how great a forest fire, uh, see how great a forest, a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and sets it on fire by hell. When you jump down to verse 8 of chapter 3, it says, but no man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil, fully of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessings and curses. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Come on, come on. We could come worship on Sunday and cuss somebody out on Monday with the same tongue. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Listen, guys, that's what brings disunity in the family and brokenness in the family, right? We're called to bring wise words, not evil or deceptive words. Proverbs 18:40 says, wise words are like deep waters. Wisdoms flow from the wise like a bubbling brook. Our words are used to build, not destroy. Come on, come on. Our words are meant to edify, Glory to build up, not to build down. Guys, how many of you have been wounded by the words of your parents? How many of you men have been wounded by your father who wasn't present that you could never hear said, I love you, son? How many sisters were you wounded because dad wasn't present with you? And you didn't hear the affirming words that needed to be affirmed. A lot of us have woundedness in our hearts because the words were never shared that needed to be shared. I love that because God the Father always affirmed God the Son. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. The power of a word. 
It was the word that he created with this word. He said, let there be light and there was light. It was the word that had power to give life and the word has power to give death. And so part of this thing is sometimes we'll bring an evil word to you, what? To destroy you and to tear you down. The enemy wants to do that. That's why he's called a liar <laughs> and the father of lies. That's the description of the enemy. And what he's done, he's lied to many of you to think you're not worthy or you're not good enough or you're not creating the image and God will never forgive you. And he begins to lie to you, the lying tongue. But the word says, Blessed are those that are called the children of God. He, he gives blessings in the scriptures. Blessings for you guys. Parents, you go home tonight when you put your little kids down and you lay your hands on them and you bless them when they go to bed. The power of a word. The power of our tongues. Watch our tongues, right? And he commands us that we must hate evil and do good. We're not only to hate evil, we're to turn away from evil. The word turn away means to avoid it. A better translation means to avoid something because you despise it and hate it. It's not enough to avoid sin because it's wrong. We have to hate it. It's we're to do what is good and what is righteous, and we're called to walk in righteousness. Then it commands us what? It says, here's, this is, watch your tongue. It says, but we must pursue peace. We must be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called what? The children of God. A child of God is known as a peacemaker. Some of you, if you want to find trouble, you'll find trouble. Trouble's not hard to find. You'll find it. Seek peace, and you'll also find it. Seek peace. The Bible says, seek me while I may be found, because God is the peacemaker. God is the peacemaker. But what does a pursuer of peace do? Here it is, guys. Number one, a peacemaker does this. Number one, you pray for those who verbally assault you. You pray. You pray for those who verbally assault you. You pray for your enemy. Oh, now it's quiet again. You treat them kindly. You treat them kindly. Hard to do, only in the spirit. That's why I say you got to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. You are to forgive them even when they hurt you deeply. Even when they hurt you deeply, you're to forgive them. Some of that might be hard. Some might be a process in that for you. Right? I'm only bringing the truth. You know why? Because I'm pouring peroxide on your wound right now. I'm pouring peroxide on your hurt right now. That open wound right now that hasn't been healed and it's festering. But it needs to be healed and it's healed by the truth. Or you will be enslaved and your stronghold will be bitterness and anger the rest of your life. Unless there's forgiveness. I had to forgive the man, my stepdad, who killed my mom. And killed my little brother. I had to forgive them. My nature first was no. But when the spirit got to hold me, I have to say yes, I forgive him. And in forgiving, I was set free. Set free of my anger and my bitterness. Guys, forgiveness is the key for healing. And I close with this, guys. Here's the last thing. Unity. Manifestation of unity. The Lord's response to unity and disunity. We'll see that in verse 12, chapter 3 of 1 Peter. If you've been up to Northern California, San Francisco, we know there's the Golden Gate Bridge. The Golden Gate Bridge is 1.7 miles between the San Francisco 
in Marion County. There's a bridge that gaps that gap, right? It's a masterpiece of steel riveted and wires, right? It took four years to complete and, and opened up in, in May 1937. So it's 84 years old, that bridge. It took four years to complete it. It took 83,000 tons of steel, 60,000 strands of wire, which would spread out would be equivalent to 80,000 miles, 600,000 of rivets. In fact, the chief engineer and designer, Daniel Moen, said this, I present to you a bridge that will last forever. I don't know about that. More impressive than this bridge was the infinite gap that was between a holy God and sinful man that was spanned with only two boards and three nails. A bridge that really lasts forever, and by faith, Christ makes us righteous through this bridge. That bridge will last forever. That bridge is eternal. Look at verse 12. It says this as we close. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Notice the eyes, the ears, and the face of the Lord are present. This is a figure of speech. We call it an anthropomorphism. It's the writer is attributing human physical characteristics to God. That's what he's doing here. He has his eyes on the righteous, first of all. He has his eyes on the righteous, right? For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. What does that tell you about God? God is watchful. God is watchful. He's watchful over you. He's watchful over the righteous, right? We are not righteous on our own merit, on our own standing, but we have been made righteous by God, right? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. Paul writes to the church, he says this. For he, Jesus, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God came to become unrighteous through taking on the sin that we might become righteous. He took, his, he took our unrighteousness and gave us his righteousness. He covered us with his righteousness. That's sweet. He took my ugliness and gave me his beauty. That's what he did. He took my darkness and gave me his light. That's what he did for me. And his righteousness is the ticket to heaven. Not your goodness, not your good works, not your anything. It's his righteousness is the key to heaven. But that doesn't take away the responsibility for us to walk righteously. We're called to walk righteously, right? In fact, Peter would later write in his second letter, in 2 Peter, he says his divine, he's given us his divine power and everything that pertains to life and God. He's given us everything we need to live righteously. We've taken on God's divine nature and his character. That's in 1 Peter 1.3. And so, first of all, we know that his eyes are on us. The righteous, he's watching. Number two, we have God's ear, right? His ears are, are watchful. I should say listening. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. His heart is loyal to him. God has oversight of his people. You know what? He's watchful. He's watching. He's, he, he, he's looking for the righteous. Do you see yourself as righteous? 
Not in our own works, but God's blessed you and beautified you. And he sees you. Some of you might not think that he sees you. You might be struggling. You might think, man, pastor, if you only knew what I went through or what I did, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. God's grace is sufficient when you're in Christ. Right? He went to hell and came back to heaven. He went to the darkest pit in order to bring light. He, he, trust me, his light overpowers the darkness. His light overpowers the deepest sin, the deepest rooted sin, whatever it is. He wipes us all clean at the cross. That's the beauty of the cross, and that's the beauty of Christ. But here's the second thing. Ears are attentive to prayers of the righteous. His ears are attentive to the prayer of the righteous, right? It says his ears are open to their prayers. God listens. <laughs> Growing up, your parents may not have listened to you, but God listens, <laughs> right? Maybe your kids aren't listening to your words, but God listens to his children's words. You know what I mean? He, he, he listens to our requests. He's receptive to our words. He takes pleasures in our petitions. James says, right, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man and woman availeth much. Availeth much. I love that we're to walk righteously for God in some sense to hear our prayers because husbands, here's a warning to you. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, the verse before we started on verse 8 says this, Husbands, likewise, draw with them understanding, giving honor to your wife, respect to your wife, as to the weaker vessel, and being heir together of grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Ouch. That if you don't treat your wife with honor and respect, God will not hear your prayers. It's, that's what the word says. I just read it. <laughs> Psalm 66, 18 says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So be careful that you think our mess gets in the way. Our mess affects our relationship and our fellowship with God. God has a, wants community with us, but when we go up, oppose him, we're walking out of that fellowship and community with God. Thank God for 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He puts us right back in fellowship with God. It's a prayer away to get back in communion with God, right? Prayer is the key to our spiritual development, right? We're, we're commanded to pray. We're called to pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. We're commanded to pray in the spirit in Ephesians 6, 18. We're, we're called, commanded to, that prayer keeps the unity of the faith. Did you know in the Bible he didn't call this a house of preaching. He didn't call it a house of fellowship. He described it as a house of prayer. Remember when he came in to turn over the tables and he said, why have you made my house of prayer a den of thieves? The power of prayer was a priority to God. And that's how he described it as it. Never forsake the power of prayer in a praying house, a praying wife, a praying husband, praying over your children, praying over your friends, praying God is listening. To the prayer of the righteous. Prayed for, I prayed, yeah. No, I'm just saying. I prayed for 38 years for my dad and mom to come to know Jesus. 38 years. God was faithful. And he'll be faithful to the righteous. But look at this, guys. 
His face is against the unrighteous. I don't love, I love God, you know, the word don't mess around. It's going to speak truth. It's going to lay it plain. Here it says, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The word face of the Lord means the presence of the Lord. His absence. You know what hell is like? You know what hell? People all fear about hell. You know what hell really is like? It's being out of the presence of God for all eternity. Because, because God is love. And hell is living in a place without love. That's hellish to me. Being out, of the, being out of the presence of God, that's hellish. For all eternity. Not even talking about the lake of fire. We, know we can get into some theological issues about hell. Just being absent from the presence of God is hellish enough for me. But the Lord will deal and discipline the wicked. He will. The unloving. God is opposed to those who do evil. Look at 1 John 3.10. It says, is this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested? We talk about the manifested unity, right? I want you to see this because here's the phrase. Aren't we all just the children of God? Okay, hold that thought because I'm going to read 1 John, the Apostle John. Here it is. Is this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested? He just distinguished between the children of God and the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness... Remember, we're talking about he's before the righteous. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not a God, nor he who does not love his brother. We don't love, we're not of God. 1 John 4.20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. And for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Love. But he will be against those who are opposed loving acts. He is opposed that. Guys, I'm going to close here to remind you here. As we close off this morning. Because love manifested. Unity is manifested in love. Unity is manifested by being one of mind. We have to be of the same mind, the mind of Christ. That's where it starts. God, deal with my mind before you can deal with my acts. Deal with the things in my head before you can deal with my behavior. Because everything proceeds from the heart and the mind. Second thing, love needs to be manifested in response to disunity. There's a correct response to disunity. There's a correct response for those who want to insult and hurt and bring in. What is our response? May we have that right response, the manifestation of, of love with the right response. And lastly, the Lord blesses the righteous and disapproves of the unrighteous. He, he, he distinguishes that. Guys, church, New Vision family, Make sure we keep the bond of unity in love. That we love one another. We care for one another. We be tenderhearted and compassionate. Spending and expressing love to one another. That should be the testimony of the church. I would imagine half the battles we see on our streets today, if we manifested that type of love, I imagine how much more peaceful our communities would be. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. We thank you for your love and blessings. We thank you for your goodness and mercy and grace. And I pray for your people this morning, Lord. I pray your hand upon them. I pray that they would understand the power of your word, for there's life in your word. And I pray as we talk about unity, Lord, may you give us a heart and mind for unity in our church, in our marriages, in our home, in our place of business, in our schools, wherever you may have us, Lord, may we be people of peace realizing there are people that are going to be disruptive and 
hurtful and insulting. But Father, fill us with your spirit that we may respond appropriately and by your spirit, realizing there's a blessing that comes when we do so. And God, you look on the righteous, you're present with us, and you hear our prayers when we do. We thank you, we pray you, praise you, and honor you. In Jesus' name, Everybody said. Thanks again for joining us. Contact us or learn more at our website, newvision.city. See you next time.